1: Welcome to the New Books and Poetry podcast. I'm your host, Jen Fitzgerald. We seek to introduce our listeners to contemporary poets who are innovative and unafraid to push the boundaries of form and style. And our guest, Cedar Saigo, is doing just that. Cedar Saigo was raised on the Suquamish Reservation in the Pacific Northwest and studied at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at the Naropa Institute. He is the author of eight books and pamphlets of poetry, including Language Arts, Wave Books, 2014, Stranger in Town, City Lights, 2010, Expensive Magic, House Press, 2008, and two editions of selected writings, Ugly Duckling Press, 2003 and 2005. A writer on art, literature, and film, Saigo has collaborated with many visual artists, and recently blogged for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art's Open Space, as well as City Lights Bookstore and the Poetry Foundation. He lives in San Francisco. Welcome, Cedar.
0: Hello. Um,
1: I'd like to start start off by getting to know you a little better, if that's okay. Um, sure. Not many people in this country understand what it's like to grow up on a reservation. Would you mind sharing a little bit of your experience?
0: Um, Sure. Um, I grew up in Suquamish, uh, which is on the Puget Sound, across uh, like a 35-minute ferry ride from Seattle. And uh, yeah, I grew up in the Indian tribal housing, and uh, my father uh, is the, or was, during the 80s, was the curator of the Suquamish tribe. And he was also on tribal council. So I was privy to a lot of the uh, tribal government decisions, and uh, that was uh, during the time when we were taking uh, the state to court over our fishing rights and clam digging rights. Um, It feels like so long ago now. Mm -hmm. Things have changed considerably uh, since uh, we built our own casino, Mm -hmm. and so the tribe is in better shape now than it was then financially. And, uh, there's a new museum and, um, yeah, people ask me a lot, you know, these funny questions about, uh, living on the reservation, like are white people allowed, yeah. you know, to live there or to visit? Um, so people are very interested in it. Um, you know, it's, it's funny to try to be objective about your life, you know?
1: Yeah. Well. The way that, that I would think about it is, is isolated, but I doubt
0: that that was the case. Right. It, it is, in a sense, um, that it's very country, but then uh, you drive for like 15, 20 minutes and you can take the ferry to Seattle, mm-hmm. um, which was great once I became a teenager and I uh, acquired such a, a book habit, and I would just go over there with like a list of writers I was interested in and then come back with like 20 books and. Uh, yeah, so it was actually very helpful uh, being so close to the city or having that option available.
1: Yeah, and it's beautiful. I mean, I love that part of the country. The Puget Sound is gorgeous.
0: Yeah, Suquamish uh, in L'Xuxed, uh, which is the native language of the Suquamish people, it means a uh, place of clear salted water, wow. which is a fairly good description
1: yeah so it seems that you were introduced to poetry before you were really introduced to language because I mean something like that that type of translation that's gorgeous
0: yeah exactly the the language I would describe it more as idio uh idiogrammatic you know it's and of uh, i don't know in a way, it sort of sounds like Arabic, it's very throaty and almost sort of violent with certain words um, I don't speak it, but Mm -hmm. in the 80s when I was growing up, there were still elders that spoke it. And now they do language classes and a lot of things to preserve Lachutzeed. That's great. Yeah. Great to
1: hear that. I normally wait until the end of the podcast to jump into the poems, but Uh I would love if you could share your poem, Things to Do in Suquamish, on page 34.
0: Oh, sure. Let me grab the book. Sure. Things to Do in Suquamish, for Jason Morris. Smoke Salmon. Call San Francisco, like totally. Get driven to the terminal, escape. Come back after dark and feed the horses. Alfalfa, Timothy, oats, pick their hooves. Visit the Suquamish Museum. The eyes of Chief Seattle are shut, his spirit to himself. Sepia tones, baskets, white hot rocks, cobalt trade beads. Say hi to all my cousins. Hold the sack. Hi, Josh. Hi, Jeremy. Drink rainier beer. A red ribbon out, up, and over the peak. I confuse it with Mount Fuji. Walk back to Dad's room. He talks when he wants and smokes. Linger over his bookshelf. Moby Dick, Starling Street, all of Kurt Vonnegut. Try and write the serial killer light at night. See through green and black, give up, try prose.
1: I love that ending, especially. Um, Now, what the listeners can't see is the shape of this poem, which it takes this very, um, I want to say ebb and flow shape, where it moves in and out of itself. Um, Can you discuss a little bit about how you came to that?
0: Yes, I always liked, uh, well, the form is uh, very indebted to the poet Ted Berrigan, And, and I always liked how his poems looked like you were like taking a walk across the page and specifically in that kind of poem where you sort of remember and imagine, you know, the things that you've done uh, when you're sort of stranded at home. um, I think that kind of wide layout and then at certain times it will become very slender. Also, it sort of invites the reader in, it pulls them in kind of spits them back out and, really denotes the kind of movement that I associate with just taking a pleasant walk.
1: Mm, absolutely. I can see that. for Sure. So, um, I know that it seems that you like Ted Berrigan, but, um, who was the first poet whose writing you connected to?
0: Uh, when I was a child, uh, the first poem, um, that I saw that I was just, you know, I had memorized it without knowing I had memorized. It was a poem by Langston Hughes, um, And so he was the first person, he was the first poet where I I was like, oh, I saw his name and then I thought, oh, I need to look for an entire volume of Langston Hughes. And um, so then I did that. But then it was really, and I wrote, you know, poetry in a rhymed style as a child Mm -hmm. um, for a long time. But then it was when I was a teenager and I read a biography actually of Allen Ginsberg, I think before I read Howell and all of that. And then that sort of spoke to the angst, I think I felt then. And then I got into the beat Riders and then San Francisco Renaissance and all the things that sort of come tumbling after Jack Kerouac. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, so then you were very young when you first realized that you were interested in poetry. You said rhy- rhyming as a child, right?
0: Definitely. And in Suquamish, I think uh, one of the advantages to growing up on the reservation was they had uh, they were so encouraging of any um, any art that you were interested in. I mean, apart from just the traditional arts of sort of carving, beading, singing and drumming, Mm -hmm. even poetry, uh, because often the prayers that people would offer were really in the form of poetry. And so any kind of art you were really encouraged to do, it wasn't seen as anything indulgent. It was seen as something elemental and necessary. And so my parents and uh, the people around uh, my family, everyone was always very encouraging of it and spoke of it as a gift.
1: Sounds like a wonderful experience. I wish that more young people had that. Do you find that even now, the I guess you could say, prosody of those prayers kind of show up in your work?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think also in the actual editing of the poems, you know, taking out things that are not necessary or um, I think definitely the prosody in the sense that the poems, I mean, the prayers would often take the shape of songs. And and I think a lot of times, I mean, I think sometimes of language arts as just a songbook, you know, um, and then when I read it, I wouldn't say it's performative, but I'm very when I put the poems and their layout on the page helps me to remember sort of the, uh, the po- where I would like to pause and where it sort of denotes the arrangement of the reading of the poem.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I was reading the poems, I definitely felt as though that they were performative, and I'm excited for you to, to read a few at the end of this um, podcast, for sure. Um, you know, Tricky question, but one that, that comes up a lot. Do you ever find that readers try to approach your work from an angle of identity poetics?
0: I think so. Uh, just because there are so few, uh, you know, quote unquote, avant-garde Native American uh, <laughs> poets. And that's the reference, you know, the fact that, that I've survived, <laughs> you know, yeah. to get to this point. And then the publishers that I've uh, been hooked up with, you know, they're not, I wouldn't say, I don't know. They're, I don't know how to put it. They're just not, they seem to, uh, what I'm interested in is getting, uh, you know, the best distribution possible. And, um, I don't know. I've always just sort of prized glamor in poetry and a lot of, uh, you know, I never saw myself as a victim in a sense, or a complaint was never a huge trope in my work, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, And so there's a lot of joy. And I'm also queer. So then people really try to attach identity to that as well. And I don't feel estranged, you know. I feel very well loved and supported. And so people try, in a Mm -hmm. sense. But I did actually, I did a a conference at Poets House last year. Uh, Yes. It was uh, Native American Poets in the 21st Century. And uh, so that was really interesting. I met a lot of other uh, Native American poets that were sort of working in the vein that I'm working in. So it was quite illuminating. You know, I think the whole scene is starting to change because we have survived, you know, and um, and so now we get to sort of move on, I think, um, beyond, you know, the shock of having survived and uh, whatever we've been through now It seems there's more of a focus on the actual language within the poetry as opposed to like a message or trying to sort out the past. It seems people are just looking toward new constructs of language. So that excited me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what I find with um, when people try to relegate a piece to identity, that they lose um, the craft and the form and, and what the poet intended. And I understand that it can be, a really amazing way for somebody to enter the, a poem or to be excited about a poet. But, I mean, once you get past that initial piece, like you, you know, the poet has laid things out for you in a specific way. And that, that's something that I've noticed in your work. So I was curious about that. But thank you very much for being so candid. Um, so how did language arts come into being? Was it one of those collections that you worked towards or it just kind of organically sprung up?
0: Well, I think you know it it it's sprung up almost too organically in the sense that I always feel like I'm you know I don't have my manuscripts all shaped up waiting to be published. I usually have to kind of be shaken down for my poems mm. um, and people usually approach me for them, and I don't rush into print uh, and I've been very fortunate you know to work with um people that I knew you know as friends really um. On these books, I worked uh, with the poets, uh, and so that was always uh, easy. I had I had met Joshua Beckman um, a couple of years before, just after a reading at a bar, and then I met Matthew Zapruder. I read with him once, and I um, don't mm-hmm. you know. It just all happened, you know, very naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I pretty much said, uh, you know, these are the poems that I have, and. Uh, you know, it just has to reflect. You know, those three years since *Stranger in Town*, uh, the *City Lights* book, and I think it does that.
1: You think it's a departure from your previous collection, or is it akin to it?
0: Um, I think it's. I think it's a bit more of a departure in the sense that the poems feel more lived in. I just did what I wanted to do in these poems. Like I, I realized that uh, I was writing a bunch of sonnets, and I just. Uh, accepted it, you know. They were obviously what I wanted to write, and I. Uh, so I think it was sort of less self-conscious in the sense of wanting to provide variety. As mm-hmm. I wanted to do that in uh, Stranger in Town, and there was probably more work to choose from at that point. Um, so I do think it's a departure in the sense that I. I think it's it shows more what it's like to be with me in person than Stranger in Town. I think that was a little more removed, maybe a little more formal.
1: Yeah. yeah this collection, um, I, I definitely feel, I, I, mean, I don't want to, of course, make everything confessional, but I did feel as though I got to know you from this, the poet, not not just the speaker of the poems. And yeah. I, I mean, it's really nice and familiar. Um, I was hoping that we could talk briefly about translation, because there is a piece in here that you have translated Um, by Giuseppe Ungaretti called Il Tacchino del Vecchio. Um, Would you mind reading that for us on page 44?
0: Not at all. In fact, I haven't read this piece since it's been published. Oh, great. This is great, yeah. From Il Tequino del Vecchio. We are the searchers in the desert. This rising fire in the mind is a lantern seen forever ago no living thing knows anything else of heaven i begin to feel the spring as pointed and creeping tiny yellow flowers pushed through framed at the window of my first house and at this one too where i sit alone where i am drawn toward the great silence will this be proof my death is fake how the spirit wanders back as searchlight gold and rose the second i start to remember you are suddenly clean and scrubbed as the sad song rises you stand up from hell and that spell crosses this night with the morning you went missing to catch yourself coming back focus your sprint through rings of fire let my sleepwalk end let my unsettled lust burn away kites hold me back with demon claws at the height of the sun drop me back to the birds a pit of fire stinking jackals and their bites will get me clean again and every night the king comes turning up sand with his cane always pointing out the perfectly white bones a death rattle it's only here to vanish and stab me back again ever deeper and surrounding this desert i hear your voice breaking in clear warm dear Shocking words of yours at rest
1: that is an amazing translation um, do you speak fluent Italian
0: uh, not at all I um, I remember that that I basically included that uh, translation in language arts because I felt that it gave me the permission to continue to translate and to to go beyond that idea that I I wasn't worthy of translating without knowing the original language. Um, And I I think I worked from, oh yeah, with that translation, I worked from an album of Ungaretti reading that poem in 1965 at a festival in Italy. And then it was followed by these horrible uh, translations in English that were read by Allen Ginsberg. And I thought, God, the Italian was so riveting. It was like a drill of fire, <laughs> the way he read it. And it was uh, kind of sounded a little bit like Pound, or maybe Pound had taken some of his style, mm. reading style from it. And then the Ginsburg translations were read in such a dopey way. Um, and I thought, gosh, you know, none of the, the feeling one gets from the Italian is in these translations. And, um, and so I just tried to restore what I was hearing in the original Italian.
1: Yeah, you, you surely did it. Um, this struck me. This is a, a, an excellent translation. Um, and it made me want to learn more about the poet. And I was surprised to find that, that he was a world war one poet.
0: Yes. Yeah. And a lot of his, I think he sort of made his name, uh, with the poems uh, reporting back from the front lines of World War One, they were very short and uh, almost like little etchings mm-hmm. of, of scenes of battle. Um, and then he was taken up by the the New York School uh, in the in the fifties and the sixties. Um, so Frank O'Hara and of course Ginsberg himself, um, they sort of rallied around him in his old age.
1: Mm-hmm. And is that what drew you to him? Was his connection with the New York poets?
0: That's where I had initially uh, heard of him. Uh, But then a lot of my friends and I were passing around a lot of translations and a lot of uh, books of poets uh, in other languages that we admired. And then um, someone handed me an Ungaretti book. And I also think, you know, with translation, uh, a bad translation can be like the most inspiring. Thing. You know, a great translation can make you feel like, oh, why bother, you know, yes. but, um, but sometimes horrible translations can make you feel like, oh, I need to fix the floorboards here. I need to update this. But...
1: Well, that's great. I think we should maybe hand out some more terrible translations to poets to get them into the mix. Get
0: them Absolutely.
1: Angry.
0: <laughs> yeah, it would be like the perfect propaganda.
1: <laughs> um, so do you want to translate any other poems or poets?
0: Um, yes, I've uh, in the book. There's also a translation of uh, "Sea Breeze," um, this kind of famous poem by Mallarmé. And I actually wanted to make. I have a small press called Old Gold, and my next project. Uh, it remains to be seen if it will be completed, but I wanted to do uh, about like 20 different translations of one poem, just by different poets, different takes on this sort of famously difficult to translate poem, uh, sea breeze or in French, it's Bryce Marine. Um, yeah, I, I think translation is, you know, it's just one of those things you can always return to, or I think, uh, just, you know, translation is part of the wonderful thing about it is just getting into someone else's head, you know?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And, uh, and, you know, some people have said, you know, it's the kind of thing poets do when they can't write poems or, you know, or the idea that it's also such a comfort that you go in knowing you're going to fail, you know, because it's in this, it was born in another tongue. So you can't really get that close to it anyway. So you do your best knowing that it's a shipwreck to begin with.
1: I've always had a lot of respect for poets who tried to do that. Um. I do know that the uh, poet Anne Townsend she actually taught herself old French so that she could translate the troubadour poets, um, and I, I just I think it's so admirable to to want to do that, and and I have found a lot of difficulties with translations of you know things like Thomas Transworn where you can get the same poem translated by many different people and all of them meaning a different thing. So I think it will be wonderful because a collection of translated poems all put together would in essence create their own singular poem, which, you know, I, I think really good idea,
0: right? It's actually, it's just so much about which element grabs you. You know, what do you, you know, it's not, I want to get the music. We're working in English. I mean, I'm working, I'm putting it, I want to make it poetry in English. So I don't feel as tied to, um, the content when, you know, the element that moves my poetry so much is the music of the language and how it piles up or retreats or whatever dynamic I identify within the words I want to enhance, you know. And a lot of my editing is done, you know, even with my own poems, apart from translations, so much of the editing is based on reading the poem aloud, you know, mm-hmm. until it's shaped to my voice.
1: Um, one thing that I noticed in your collection that stood out to me was um, your titles, And I was wondering if you could discuss how you create titles, what you think their function could be, because I noticed that some of your titles are in conversations with the piece. Some of them, um, you know, create a new dynamic or even pervert the content of the poem.
0: Yeah, my thing about titles recently has been like, if you love a title from the past, it's already been used. You know, you shouldn't feel like you can't uh, just slap it onto your own work. Uh, Mm -hmm. I did that several times in language arts um chimes at midnight uh is a film by orson welles um in which he films uh, shakespeare um and then gosh uh, i think they really i love how they designed language arts so that the titles figure in so prominently
1: yeah they do the the setting um the setup of this book is uh, expertly executed (laughs) you know wave knows what they're doing for sure right Um, one title that I think kind of like put itself into contrast with the content of the poem was an emotional memoir on 22 would you mind reading that for us
0: oh yeah not at all yeah an emotional memoir that's a great example of uh, ripping off another title that was taken from uh, this beautiful memoir of a friendship with Franz Klein by fielding Dawson Mm And it was uh, that book is called Franz Klein, an emotional memoir. And um, I wrote this, I was in Zurich to do a reading. And, you um, and, know, it, it had been a rough year or so. And, um, and I, when I read the poem, I thought, gosh, this sounds like a tormented diary. <laughs> uh, but um, so I, I just thought, you know, an emotional memoir. It's, it seemed kind of captivating, almost like a pulpish kind of title, so. Um, an emotional memoir. I walked along the mouth of a black river in Zurich. I nearly froze, remembered please and thank you. I sometimes had to point and could not look down. It may have been a bed laid for a railway track. I had traveled sleeplessly, still excited to get away in final observation of my emotions. A friend I hadn't seen since childhood had asked me here. We had been facing the same two-way mirror for years without knowing it. He had written to me about my poetry, so I hammered back the emerald tablet in return. We were both helpless to showing the edge of two opposites drawn together, romancing the edge of Assyrian robes, re-entering the embassy. We came on with almost embarrassed affection, so easy to talk, His wife resembled Sharon Tate. They had three children, you would never guess. How grateful I felt to be lost among lopsided spinning leaves. It was a passage with the usual skull change. Some morning glory seeds I had figured into a brick to block my windpipe. I found its rightful fit, and it dissolved. It only reinforced the deep Atlantic green that later fell from gold in soccer core fighting off the torrents of green blood through my poems, my eyes. It was no fair. In gray square-cut button-up coat, I don't have ideas, I get to work. No talent, no genius, but divination, painted dusk.
1: This poem strikes me as a piece that one should read again and again and again and find different entry points into it not necessarily to unlock it, but to enter the landscape of it. Um, The place where the poem turns for me is how grateful I felt to be lost among lopsided spinning leaves. And then everything down from there, it seems as though the poem has has shifted. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Absolutely. Uh, It's very astute in the sense that um, after Zurich, I went to Paris. And so that is sort of that's when it turns and the scene uh, the scene changes to uh, Paris and it was the first time I had been there and just sort of the romance of that and um, and I think also it was I don't speak French and I was I knew a couple people in town but not many you know so you're wandering around not speaking or not really being able to say all you'd like to say mm-hmm. and that almost felt. Uh, psychedelic in a way. And <laughs> so, so the
1: morning I, glory seeds come
0: in. Yeah. And all of that and, <laughs> uh, wandering around town. And, uh, yeah. So that is definitely, uh, where it sort of becomes, where it moves out of prose and into poetry, mm-hmm. you know, where the element of poetry sort of, uh, sweeps it along into the unknowing, you know, but it's still rhythmically, it remains intact. And that's, I think why I keep coming back to poetry as a form. It does these things,
1: Absolutely. Um, and for those who can't see, the poem itself is block text. So that shift is one that is experienced, um, I guess, viscerally instead of visually.
0: Definitely. I was very intentional about making that poem feel like a screen. You know, so there, I made sure the lines uh, ran over, that there wasn't uh, the usual orchestration and spreading out.
1: Would you mind reading another
0: one for us? Um, I really like Taken Care of on page 27. Oh, sure. Taken Care of. I come from Inuit oil money, from instruments of chance and divination. The most loose, shut in, wavering mind. Recording my day with recitations and tene, narration and figure. My phone might die. I'm walking dirty. Shop and mob cops not to touch my mother's breast for the queen's royal crown signature. Izzy Juju, hijacked, forsaking all others. The untamed Scotch is mine. It cost the picture a fortune to say nothing of my turban. Costume copies of Topaz bracelets, the upteenth translation. Did you ever know mica, Gay Sunshine, Grace Cathedral, Coconut? I went from heels at Barney's to the depths of the bins. Who could be like dropping in? I'll fold both my hands in gloves and wait. Hope Diamond peeking out.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I don't think there will ever be a first line of poetry cooler than I come from Inuit oil money. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's not going to happen again ever Uh, for the sound alone in that i love the sound there in oil money and it is sound that is the connective tissue for this poem in my opinion because a lot of the uh, images seem disparate but when when you say it that performative aspect you were talking about it all seems connected um can you tell us a little bit about how this poem came into being
0: Yes. Um, what was interesting is that this poem was originally, it looks sort of long and skinny, um, without stanza breaks, kind of like a Jimmy Schuyler poem, uh, um, or a fatter Eileen miles poem. Um, but then as I got further into writing language arts, I realized I was writing everything. Um, I was writing this sequence of sonnets, which basically take up the middle of the book mm-hmm. and, um, And then I had this poem, uh, taken care of, which I realized was that I was reading it like a sonnet, even though I had enforced this sort of long, skinny, uh, projective look onto it. Um, and again, I think that that, you know, the disparate elements being joined just speaks to, uh, you know, reading aloud being so much a part of the editing process. Uh, and, um, to me, you know, it's, uh, you know, to the poet, you know, go, the, the, the things go together so naturally, but I do think it's something that, you know, it really comes across in the voice of the poet. And I wonder if, um, you know, if people have how they read my poetry, you know, sometimes it's you need to put some speed onto the words. You know, you can be shocked when you finally hear a poet read their works and you've been reading them for years, you know, the speed or how do they take the words, how do they take the corners of the line. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think that your poetry um, definitely needs to be read aloud for a different experience. It can be appreciated on the page, but I, what you do with sound is masterful. Um, and I know that you say that a big part of your revision process is reading out loud, What are you listening for? What are you tuning the ear for when you do
0: that? Um, I'm really tuning the ear for surprise, Mm -hmm. like uh, more than anything. And there are are a lot of poems um, that they have to be reworked. You know, it's the first draft often I'll do and then I'll just hide it and I'll come back to it. Uh, the next day or when I feel like I really have the physical strength to go at it again and to see it differently Mm -hmm. Um, and it can get to the point where you're reordering these lines you know so much uh, that you really do have to like put it away and forget you know uh, forget that last draft or you have Mm -hmm. to return to it I'm uh, listening for sort of just a locking together of the elements and i don't want it, it's interesting because you you know you could describe these poems as very busy you know but then they still breathe in places they breathe the line isn't the increment of measure necessarily within the line there may be four four different you know they're broken apart even within the lines mm-hmm. so i can't i can't On the page I can't even express all the little pauses you know Uh, if I did it would look terribly eccentric (laughs) so the only way to do that is is in the reading
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah I I look at your poems and this might be a strange analogy but if you look at a city street and it appears that um, people or objects have been placed there somewhat randomly upon first glance but then when you walk through the street you completely understand why everyone is where they is, you know, are, rather, uh, why there's a clown holding balloons next to a shark, next to, you know, a little girl. Uh, of course, those images don't appear in your work, but just the idea of entering a space and seeing things very differently, but then spending time in that space, listening with the reading out loud, um, it, it explains it all, and it, it brings your poems to life in a really great way.
0: oh I love that so much, because <laughs> I think I, I, I feel that uh, the, the objects are there, they invite you, you know, mm-hmm. to come up to them. You know, and I think that's a good analogy in that sense. Like everything in my work, I invite, you know, the reader up close. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Definitely. Um, would you want to read the poem on page 21, uh, Roman numerals
0: 35? Oh, sure. This is a take on Shakespeare 35, uh, the sonnet 35. Um, 35. Fuck off with your crippling guilt. The earth has edges. Boys get thrown in fountains. Dusk is painted over the moon. The sun grows black in your sleep. Peel back your lotus to its bloody root. No one is beyond reproach, except the Indians. And still I twist your fault against my grip. My head spins when the old bull rushes your foreback past the brim of night, I suffer this reversal right beside you. I talk myself out of the song I plead, go to the sea, the lake, the tree, hear the acid burn round my skull. You're so fine, I still play dumb, a zombie dust inside your lungs. Draw me in deeper with deceit than smoke. Let's go again.
1: Thank you. Um, this poem struck me as one that um, took a lot of time to craft. Did you return to this a lot, or or was this something that just kind of fell on the page?
0: No, I definitely did. um, As I wanted to get the sentiment of the original Shakespeare sonnet, this was an an assignment uh, for an anthology in which contemporary poets reimagined the sonnet cycle of Shakespeare. And so they uh, assigned this poem to me, and I definitely wanted to get, you know, what was being said um, in the Shakespeare, and then just sort of run it through the filter of my life for the past, like, two years or year and a half. Um, but it definitely was something that was edited um, several times. And it feels to loved. It
1: does. It feels like a loved poem,
0: for sure. Yeah, and I also felt that... You know, the Shakespearean, you know, the tongue of that, that made it, that did make it easier. You know, I like to try, I always loved that Ted Berrigan line. He says, die nightly for a change of style. I love
1: that.
0: So I loved that. That's what I felt like I was doing. I just tried on this, this like slip of Shakespeare for a minute and it actually helped it get done. Um, So. I'm going
1: to steal that line. I'm writing it down right now.
0: (laughs) and the um the thing about i also uh, part of that poem too was i always loved uh ted berrigan's sonnets and so i folded a couple lines um from his sonnet 35 um in with the shakespeare so there are you know these certain ways of getting it done or <laughs> getting the poem taken care of as it were uh, you know and those are just parts of, you know the form that presents itself I mean I feel like I'm just constantly chasing forms and that's what's kept me interested in really? poetry
1: you, you yeah. don't feel restricted by them you feel free
0: yes definitely um, I need a little bit of narrowing you know my mind it is sort of so scattered you know as the reading can sort of uh, convey but um it could go, you know, the possibility that I could do anything sometimes I feel is a little stifling. So i like to narrow the channel. And then within that just go somewhere else, you know, like a singer would renegotiate a melody, you know, of a standard. I I like, I like that, you know, that I just like to toy with the changes.
1: Yeah, I I do get the feeling of a wild mind on the page, but one that as the reader that I can trust, like it's not a, it's not a turnoff, like it brings me in, it doesn't, Me away, so maybe you're onto something there with the forms. (laughs) I've had a difficult time working within them, but uh, that's what happens when you enter poetry from contemporary and then try to go down.
0: Yeah, Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: the last poem that I was hoping you could read for us is the title poem, uh, Language Arts, on page 39.
0: Oh, great! Yeah, this is a great one to end with (laughs) here, Language Arts for Dana Ward. Moose Jaw Times, Harold Metz, yellow bits. In a sprung for Yolanda game, you know I am boss. In the shade of the running board, sun, eagle, owl, diamond dove feathers, take me down. Please stop this. I'm headed your way. This is the happiest unrelated night of my life. Look on the notes. See you pinning it on me. World of pain. Games two and three exceed in value as fits. There are so many poems to go around tonight. There is not one game in town. A bishop who ate the vessels hid the words to gain his finish. A dust died up the sides, who fell into its rot rekindled in words. Did you see how deep mine dug? Since when does she sing? She wrote her pool hall memoirs for money, as did Kafka, Chester Himes, and Valerie Larbeau. Spackle, you fuck. Build my fort and score the edges of my lozenge. Sized everlasting. Mineral makeup. Gray on camel tone. Greige. I, too, know what I am not. Watching electricity return to a town across the river. Learned germs. Fields of excised herrick. Shaving faded flu lads. I still possessed a swiftness of spirit. Chinese-bound in covers of hammered card. brittle Jewess. Sour earthworm eggs. Mourning in keyport. A wall, a jet of ink. After dark, we wake again. Picking clean stones from the beds of our teeth. Etching with a ghost. Dark red, brown-blue, black umbrella. I love strangers in an ailing mansion. That's how they've groomed the stars of today, as escorts. I saw so many people I used to know. I like my nice Portland white friends. They live to be super young, pretty sloshed professionals of the language. Leave our machines running in plain view, in space surveillance variations.
1: Thank you. Um, This is another poem that I think that readers could read time and time again and enter it at a different point, get something new from it. of the poems that I have asked you to read, this is the first one where we see some type of humor. Um, do you think that humor is important to this piece?
0: Yes, I think so, because it's so it's so deeply encoded, I think. Um, and it's really comprised of sort of asides. And uh, so, yeah, in order... I think the humor came up in the actual speed of the composition and in the speed... That uh, the reading allows, so it sort of piles up, and the humor comes to the surface. Uh, but I, I felt I couldn't help it. You know, it wasn't something contrived in any sense. It was a poem that that I wanted to include in this uh, collection because it threatens to come apart at any minute. You know, there's no there's no reason these lines um, should be together. Um, it kind of reminded me of uh, Clark Coolidge or. Uh, After the fact, or like late John Wieners, where you're not sure if uh, the poet is pulling words together or tearing them apart, you know?
1: Absolutely. I love what you just said, comprised of the sides. Um, I think that that's a really interesting way to look at this. But then if you're going to be comprised of the sides, there has to be that central vein, that thing that you are stepping aside from. What do you think the central vein is?
0: I think you got it. I think it might be the humor, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it might be... And also Stein. I also think of Gertrude Stein. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a graph of the mind moving, really. Um, and I, it was for Dana Ward because he had written uh, a whole sonnet sequence based on uh, Stranger in Town, my last book. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this poem for him, to him, um, you know, trying to... It was a guess at what I thought he might have admired in my, you know, and really what that is, is like a speed, you know, cutting, cutting right through words, you know, almost, you know, are you, are you doing damage or are you sort of bolstering the health of poetry or are you, you're moving into a territory? I wouldn't have put this in because I don't, you know, it seemed to me the unknown.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a few things in here. I I mean, I want to talk more about this poem, so I want to pull more things out for sure. Um, Diamond, dove, feathers is beautiful. Um, Etching with a ghost, dark red, brown, blue, black, all the colors that you put into that line. Um, I, I love the way that you are able to not only pay attention to the sound, but you carry the reader through with the images, and you use color a lot in your work, and especially in this Do you think that certain colors are allocated to certain emotions or intentions?
0: Definitely. I also, uh, you know, I know a lot of poets, but I know just as many uh, visual artists, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, and, you know, sometimes they're my favorite audience to discuss my process because there are so many uh, there are so many things we have in common. And uh, so I felt like, you know visual artists get to just throw color out there and they get to use that as such a component of their work. And, um, and so I just felt I should mm-hmm. be able to do that too, whether or not the work is representational or, you know, has narrative components or if it's more like this where it's very abstract, almost violent. Mm-hmm. Least so.
1: Yeah. I think that the argument that was being made in, um, the poem sardines was that, um, poetry is more like painting than writing. Which is, yeah. <laughs> which is something that I definitely agree with, um, but it's hard to explain that to writers, you know, even writers and painters that are not poets. How um, poetry is asking you to access something different than, let's say, you know, prose or um, you know, even even watching watching a play.
0: Um, right, because you may have to, in order to explain why something is there, you may have to sort of retrace your steps, and mm-hmm. you know, it might not, you know a certain line might fit a certain place and you don't, you can't say why immediately, but if you took it out, you know, the whole thing would, you know, would fall apart. And uh, language arts specifically, that was an experiment or a form really um, in which I had my phone. I had an iPhone before this phone. And I, when I was taking the train to work or I heard something that I, that just stuck in my mind as a line that was so beautiful and albeit random, I would, you know, I didn't I just had a notes a note taking function on my phone, so I would take it down. And then I used a lot of that in language arts. And they were really the best lines because there were lines that so often you would forget. Like I you know, the most beautiful lines I've ever written are usually forgotten. You know, they'll be at a party where I'm enjoying myself too much to remember. <laughs> You know, but in this case, because I had that stupid phone, <laughs> I could remember them all, and um, so it was really the, the material. It was a dr- the dream of poetic material that was actually realized through being able to record it um, at an odd moment.
1: Yeah, those moments where we are given lines or images—they're—they're um, they're strange. They're otherworldly. Uh, I'm still not sure where they come from, but I, I always have something to write down. You know, write up pen and paper with me at all times because they are fleeting as well. I mean, do you have like any hypothesis on where these things actually come from?
0: Probably from Orpheus or, you know, (laughs) years of the the underworld, or I always loved Jack Spicer's lectures. That was always my favorite. The idea that the aliens come into the room and they, you know, they move the furniture around for you, you know? Uh, And I think, you know, that's what happens. Um, But it's interesting, you know, that poem is not one that you could, you could say, you know, what is the material, you know, is, I don't know that, that without, I don't know that all poets would be able to write that kind of poem without reference, you know, they need uh, the words to actually mean something. Um, It's like being able to play an instrument, you know, Um, and You know, do people need to read music or can they improvise and can they, you know, make a five minute song into a 40 minute one? You know, (laughs) do they have that that level of simultaneity to be able to do that? Because the lines don't exist on their own. It sort of gets back to that other thing I was saying. There are gaps within the line that you don't see that the poet sees and imposes, um, you know, and then you'll talk to other poets It's interesting, you know, being asked since Stranger in Town, I've been asked, you know, to write uh, a lot of poetic pieces and people seem almost more interested in poets than they do in poetry, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things where what you're called on to do as a poet after a certain point over and over is to try to describe the process, try to describe, you know, going somewhere else to, you know, uh, losing track of time, basically, in the act of writing.
1: I have that experience often. Um, I tried to explain it to one of my professors who will remain nameless, and um, he or she asked me if I thought I was having seizures, because they had never... Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's what the form... I love that, because that's really the form of uh, that particular poem, Language Arts. It does seem to me a seizure, you know, and the only... The only uh, thing I had to look to were these insane notes, you know, that, you know, they, they could have, I, you know, they came from, it was probably a year of, you know, writing down those random lines that I couldn't get out of my mind or I heard once. Uh, but yeah, that's the form I and mean, that's. And that interests me, you know, the seizure <laughs> as a form. I really like that. Maybe I'll use that. You know.
1: Oh, please do. Please uh, let something good come with that comment. Um, <laughs> so maybe the the connective vein, the thing that runs through this, is, is the time itself, is the year. The Because I, I, I doubt that you kept it chronological, but these lines represent a year of your life.
0: Exactly. And I think that's really what the form of the whole collection of language arts is. And that's, you know, really, when I say, you know, people are more interested in poets than poetry, I think my books are always going to be just a gathering of, you know, where the last book left off. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, some of these poems are so opaque and they just have to do with the music of language and the way in which I hear which is never going to change. You know, I'm always going to isolate these certain phrases that will become triggers. But at the same time, there's so much poetry that never gets written down that just pertains to the lifestyle of the poet and the you know the risks that they're taking. Um, like, how do you need to know? You know, that I was in Zurich and in Paris to enjoy an emotional memoir. You may not need to know it, but when you do know it, you know then it sheds some light on
1: it. It does. It adds other dimensions, but it's not necessary for for one to enjoy the piece, certainly. Um, You know, this has been a great pleasure, absolutely. Um, It seems that you are a wealth of knowledge because the poets that you have been able to um, call upon in this conversation and and poems that you remember um, has astonished me, and I think that I could probably (laughs) pick your brain for a week and still be surprised um, but who are you reading right now
0: right now um, I've been reading a lot of Eileen miles mm-hmm. um, particularly uh, her book of essays uh, called uh, the importance of being Iceland I've been reading that quite a bit I've also been reading the biography of HD that was written by Barbara guest
1: Really?
0: and that is fabulous uh, because it, it takes uh, the style of O'Hara. It's like if O'Hara had lived long enough to write like a biography of Pasternak or some poet that he had loved. Um, but uh, that's been great, and then it sends me right back into the works of HD, which, at times, were so tied up in myth and, uh, and in all the secondary material, Kind of similar to Pound. I mean, not that cloaked, but almost. And so it really helps to, uh, it's helped me to sort of unlock her work a bit. And, uh, just to hear about all the drama of her life that was concurrent to these sort of, uh, poems made of marble. You who know? mm. oh, else like um, and, uh, yeah. also, and I also, I've been reading my, uh, you know, just my friends. I, I love the poetry of Micah Ballard, who's a San Francisco poet. Um, he had a book uh, out by City Lights called *Waifs and Strays* uh, cool. about three years ago. I've been rereading that, and and I've also did uh, they just reissued uh, this book uh, *Semina*, where they uh, published all the issues of *Semina*, this great art and poetry magazine edited by uh, Wallace Berman, and they finally just uh, did like a facsimile. And so you can see all, every issue, everything that was, uh, all the art and all the poetry that was in every issue of this extremely rare poetry magazine. Mm -hmm. And so I've been looking at that. uh, And is
1: that, is that available like broadly?
0: Yes, it was published by this amazing um, art press called Boo Hooray out of New York. Mm -hmm. And they did like a fancy, uh, like a hardcover with all of these things. But then they also just did like a $40 paperback reprint And uh, I would urge any poet or artist to get a hold of that while they still can. I'm not sure what the edition size was.
1: Yeah, I'm going to definitely not go on Amazon and order that uh, (laughs) as soon as we're done here. Um, Final question. What would you do if you couldn't write poetry?
0: I think I would probably write about art. Mm -hmm. Um, I would. And I draw some and I might. Uh, I think I might try to draw, but you know, buy uh, nicer materials, larger paper, mm-hmm. and do more experiments uh, in that vein. Try to get better at that. I do it, but um, it's usually portraits that I'll do. I'll copy like a photograph of a writer that I like. Uh, or I've been doing castles uh, recently too. And uh, yeah, uh, so I would probably do that. And I'm pretty. Private about it, but I feel this in a way like it's the same line that I'm using in my poetry. It's like it's definitely me at this point, <laughs> and uh, so. But then it becomes very formal, and you know, I'm just copying something. I'm copying a, uh, a photograph, so the so it's like rigid, but everywhere that the line shakes is actually uh, that's an attribute. You know.
1: Can we expect any uh, mixed media from you in the future?
0: <laughs> Maybe. Uh, <laughs> depends on how it goes. I think I do need to allot more time to it, so that's why it occurred to me, because if I didn't do poetry, if I wasn't so you know, hypnotized and taken by just little strands of language, I might have the time and the wherewithal to actually seriously um, penetrate art.
1: Well, we have taken up a significant amount of your time today. Um, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. And we look forward to following you and your work
0: in the future. Oh, thank you so much. It was so easy to talk with you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Likewise.